Are you ready for the most ridiculous internet sports show you have ever seen? Welcome to React, home of the most outrageous and hilarious videos the web has to offer. So join me, Rocky Theus, and my co-host, Raiders Pro Bowl defensive end, Max Crosby, as we invite your favorite athletes, celebrities, influencers, entertainers in for an episode of games, laughs, and of course, the funniest reactions to the wildest web clips out there. Catch Reacts on YouTube, and that is Reacts, R-E-A-X-X. Don't miss it. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Regressing to the mean since 2015, it's the Hockey PDO Cast with your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDO Cast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining is my good buddy Tyler Dello. Tyler, what's going on, man? Not much, Dmitry. How you doing, pal? Good. We're uh, we're recording this on a when is it Tuesday or Wednesday? I, I'm losing track, man. I'm, I'm I'm so sleep deprived with all these all this playoff stuff going on. I, I don't even know what day it is anymore. I think it's Tuesday morning. It, it is Tuesday morning. <laughs> You're probably confused because of the two day breaks between series. Yes, um, that's probably what's throwing you off. Yes, let's let's go with that. Um, no, it's uh, it, it's Tuesday morning. We're recording this uh, the morning after uh, Game Four concluded. So, you know, people have been asking me to, you know, when when's the next show going to happen? Because I haven't really done anything since the series preview, and I typically don't want to, you know, record reactionary podcasts after each game because so much changes in the dynamics of a series, but. I think we've seen at least enough now from from these two teams going head to head to make some sort of tentative conclusions. And I don't know, like what's what's been the biggest story for you through these first four games? Um, hopefully, it's something other than goaltending because I, I I don't even know what, what what to say about that anymore at this point. Uh, I think for me, the biggest story has been sort of you know the way Nashville's outshot Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and the fact that they're doing something with it too, right? Like they're turning it into goals. The, one of the things I was worried about with the Predators coming into this series was how they were going to score goals, just given the uh, the state of their top six forwards. Like I think losing Ryan Johansson and Kevin Fiala really hurt them. Right. And you know, they've I, I, I'm not as surprised that they've managed to outshoot Pittsburgh, um, just given you know that they still have a, a pretty good uh, team in place. I am surprised that they've managed to turn it into as many five on five goals as they have. Well, I mean, it's it's twofold. Part of it is obviously just the the pure volume, particularly from the first two games. But then I, I thought in games three and four they did a really good job of sort of just taking advantage of of that foot speed advantage they might have, especially against the Penguins' blue liners, and really creating a bunch of odd man rushes and, and breakaways and, and converting on a couple of them. I know Arvidsson had one, and you know Craig Smith's had one. So um, yeah, it's it's it, it's it's interesting how. Um, how it's flipped because after two games it was very easy to you know m- 
make these sort of snap judgments about how the Penguins had had conquered shot quality and whether we need to reevaluate that. And and then it's kind of nice to see that you know a little normalcy has been restored and the Penguin and the Predators have finally been rewarded for for how well they've been playing at five on five in these last two games. Well, I sort of see two things there. Like, first of all, to me, it's not just a foot speed thing. Like, it's the Penguins' defense doesn't really seem to be able to handle getting forechecked. Like the the amount of times that the forecheck has kind of led to, you know, a lost puck battle for the Penguins' defense, followed by a turnover, followed by a chance, is just unreal. Like, and if you go back to Game One, you see, um, like James Neal had that chance when it was three three and he hit the crossbar, right? Eh? Yep. And, you know, that whole play came from Pittsburgh getting in on the, uh, or Nashville getting in on, uh, on Pittsburgh's defense and putting them under a lot of pressure and just, you know, they couldn't win puck battles. And even I think either the 3-3 or the 3-2 goal in that game was the same thing, right? Like the Preds got down the ice first, two pens, D get back, and they can't knock the guy off the puck. And, and to me, like that's really, you know, been a story of this is, when the you know when the pressure comes on the Predators on on the Penguins defense, I hate having two P teams in the finals. Mm, yeah. But when when the, when the pressure comes, they just can't deal with it, and you know you, you just see it over and over and over that the puck gets turned over. And even like last night, the first goal, it was uh, you know the pressure comes on Oli Mata, and he sort of fires a nice waist high pass to a uh, Penguin uh, at the ha- at the hash marks turnover goal. And it just keeps happening over and over and over. Yeah, I was I was mulling this idea over um, throughout the series against the Senators, and I, and I, I noticed that you tweeted something uh, along the same lines out last night as well. And it's sort of this, I, you know, the question of why the Senators weren't trying to be more aggressive with their forecheck and, and take advantage of of that lack of uh, ability to deal with it that we're seeing in this series. Because you know, we made so much, so much, uh, gave so much attention to that one three one they were running and how it was stifling them through the neutral zone. But it did feel like there was an opportunity to really create some easy looks just based on the Penguins defensemen not being able to get out of their own way. And I don't really think they took advantage of that. Well, was it stifling them through the neutral zone? Because by the end of that series, it certainly felt like Pittsburgh had it figured out. Yeah, it was in the first two games for sure. Yeah, but that's, you know, I, and I, I think that's a great question. Like, um, and it's funny, like I had somebody sort of saying to me last night, oh, you know, Guy Boucher would say, well, we forecheck the same as everybody else. And, you know, I, I don't know that I buy that. I, I think the the point at which the Sens kind of drop into the one three one um is a point at which other teams might be aggressively forechecking. Yeah. And when you've got a team whose defense just just cannot handle it. And it's interesting, right, because the Predators got pretty passive later in that series against uh Anaheim. Mm-hmm. Um but all of a sudden they're right back at it. And you know, when you've got a team with a defense group like that like it's it's an interesting challenge for the coach in terms of, you know, are you willing to take the risk of what happens when they do hit the pass to Crosby or Malkin or Kessel or Gunsell or whoever? Um, and, and I, you know, going into the series, I thought this was the right play for the Predators. And, you know, four games in, it, it still looks like a pretty good decision. Well, it's an interesting dilemma for Mike Sullivan on the other end of things because, you know, he's gotten a ton of credit over the past year and a half or so since he took over uh, with all the success they've had as a team. And it's always been tough to try and, you know, balance or, or differentiate between how much of it was his own doing and how much was just the pure uh, ability and the horses he had on this team. And it's going to be fascinating to see if he has any sort of adjustments up his sleeve uh, heading back to Pittsburgh for game five, because 
I don't, you know, maybe that's why he's paid the big bucks and we're not, because I'm, I'm, I'm struggling to see what they can do to help those defensemen out beyond, I don't know, just like getting the forwards to draw back lower and and using guys like Kessel and Malkin and Crosby to try and just pretty much just take the puck out of out of Ron Hainsey's hands and break out themselves. Like I don't, I don't really see uh, schematically what they can do with the personnel they have. It seems like their hands are kind of tied behind their back here. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a couple things there. Like, it's, it's funny. Like, I, I do think Mike Sullivan's a really good coach. Mm-hmm. And the way that Penguins team played last year was just unbelievable. But I think you sort of see what happens, you know, on an NHL team. Like, the talent is so level now between teams that when you lose a key guy or two, it just screws everything up. And you go back to that Penguins team last year. Like, they had that third line of Kessel and Hagelin. And it was it was unbelievable. Like, I think... I think like after Christmas, those guys generated when they were on the ice, the Penguins generated like 42 five on five shots an hour, mm-hmm. which is just a ridiculous number. Like the league average is something like 27, 28. There's bad power plays that don't generate 42 shots an hour. Like it was crazy. But, you know, I think a lot of that comes from you have to have guys in the right spot. And, you know, like like to uh, to Sullivan's you know credit, he he certainly, you know, found the right spot to put guys in. Um, and like when they got to the, I mean, like I remember the last two rounds last year, like I wanted to see Tampa win because I like John Cooper and I wanted to see San Jose win just because I, I think, you know, Joe Thornton's taken a lot of unfair heat in his career. Mm-hmm. But watching those two series, you know, there was no point at which you were like, yes, San Jose or Tampa is the better team. Like Pittsburgh just, Pittsburgh did to them what Nashville's doing to them this year. Yeah. And I really do think a lot of it is just, you know, this is what happens when you don't have when you don't have the depth. Um, you just get taken apart. Yeah, but I mean, obviously, you know, the Latang uh, injury is you you can't really overstate. Just he was playing like nearly thirty minutes a night towards the end of that postseason, and just you know the ability to bridge the gap there was huge. But like beyond that, I mean, like why has that? Uh, that that line. I, mean, I guess Haglund's been banged up a bit, and so has Benino. But like, even while the, th- the three of them were healthy, they still weren't playing the same way as they were last year. Like, is it just like, like, do you have any any sort of ideas for why that is beyond they're just not playing as well as they were last season? Uh, I kind of wonder what's been up with Benino. Uh, I, I before the playoffs, I wrote about this, like, because you know Pittsburgh, it wasn't just a playoff thing. Pittsburgh's third line all year wasn't what it was, you know, post Sullivan last year. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you separate Kessel and Benino, Kessel looks a lot better. So I don't know. I, I kind of wonder if there's something up with Benino this year. And I also think a player like Hagelin, like I think it's a foot with him. And for a guy whose game is really built on his speed, uh, playing with a foot problem is probably uh, a pretty big, you know, issue for him. Yes. So, you know, it's, it's, you know, I don't know. To me, like the big, you know, one of the big lessons here is, you know, it's hard to win. And, you need so much luck to win, even if you're a great team. Mm-hmm. And just as far as health, right? Like, um, you know, like, and even like if you look at Nashville, if they lose this series, they're going to wonder forever what would have happened if, you know, Johansson hadn't had that sort of innocuous bump that resulted in compartment syndrome uh, against Anaheim. And, and with Pittsburgh, you know, like, I'm sure they'll wonder forever if we had Latang and if we had, uh, you know, Hagelin in better condition, you know, where would we be? Yeah, that's fair. I mean, yeah, I'm, 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 I'm trying to rack my like. It's it must really uh, t- 
tell you how little they think of a guy like Mark Stryfe, for example, that he can't draw into the series just based on the struggles that we've seen from these other guys. Like I know that there's questions about his own foot speed and how he'd deal with, with these four checkers, but it does seem like he at least has like a, a higher baseline level of skill to move the puck. And that might be something that would, that would benefit them. And beyond that, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what there is to do really. I'm sort of surprised. Yeah, I'm surprised that, you know, he couldn't get in either. Um, like, if you looked at his season in Philly, his numbers weren't terrible. Yeah. And just looking at how Pittsburgh's defense has struggled, right? Like, you know, it's a surprise that he couldn't, you know, he can't get in. But, you know, I don't know. Hockey's, uh, hockey's funny that way. Like, coaches sort of decide they like a player or they don't like a player. Mm. And, you know, like, it's sometimes it's pretty small differences and, and they seize on one issue and, you know, a guy stays out. Now, Strike didn't look good when he came in against Ottawa, as I recall. Right. But, um, you know, I'm not stunned that uh, I'm not stunned that he can't get in. Uh, you know, you wonder at this point when he's been out for so long what he could do. But, um, you know, I, I gosh, like what else? What else can you do? You might as well try it. Yeah, I mean. I, I raised this topic earlier and, and, uh, it got interesting responses to it, but it, it, for whatever reason, people don't seem to, uh, they seem to give a guy like Ole Mata a lot of free passes. Uh, I, I know he's dealt with a lot of injuries and unfortunate circumstances health wise. And, uh, that's probably played a large part in stunting his development and, and, and have, and the up and down performance. But like, he's a guy that's looked really, really shaky throughout this postseason and especially in the series. And, um, he'd be like a top candidate for, for, for me to, to either play a smaller role or be taken out of the lineup. But it seems like that's not going to happen at this point in time. Yeah, it's. I, I'm amazed at how bad he's been, right? Yeah. Like, and it's funny, right? Because if you don't, like, I don't know, you can only watch so many teams. Like, it's you know, like I've been, I've been kind of joking a bit about this, but I'm amazed at the number of people in Canada who have strong opinions about how the Predators <laughs> deploy their defense. And it's just like you know, if you're a Canadian media guy, the Nashville Predators are pretty low on the list of teams you need to know what's going on with. Yeah. And, you know, so it's it's a case where, you know, and to go back to Matta, it, it's a case where, you know, he was a guy who you always heard, oh, yeah, he's a good player, good player, good player. And, you know, like, I don't know, how many times you watch in Pittsburgh in a year, even if you're a real, someone who really follows hockey? Like, it's, it's a big league. Pittsburgh's probably not your favorite team. You know, you're only seeing him so many times. And, I can't get over how bad he's been in the playoffs. And it's kind of like, like I went back and looked a little bit and you really wonder when you start to look at some of his numbers, like he's been good with good players, with good partners, but away from good partners, it looks like it's always been a bit of a, a bit of a circus. And, you know, like, you know, I sort of took a 10, 15 minute look because I was kind of interested in the, the disconnect between what I'd always heard about him and what I was seeing watching him in the playoffs. And, you know, I kind of wonder if he's someone who gets a lot of credit because he gets a lot of points. And I think that absolutely happens. Um, but, you know, and has played with good players, um, which makes him look better. But, you know, when he's on his own, all of a sudden look out because it, it is not a pretty picture. Yeah, he doesn't have much fault to fall back on. Um yeah, so let's let's talk a bit about, you know, the deployment of those Predators defensemen and the way they're using them. Um it's interesting. We've seen, especially when this series shifted to Nashville and, and Peter Laviolette had last change that he definitely started, uh, going 
I don't know. Is it fair to say that he started going towards more of a um, a matchup with with Yossi and Ellis versus Crosby? Or I know that was the case in Game Three. I, mean, I haven't necessarily looked at the matchup numbers for Game Four yet. I think that was the case in Game Four. I'll just look now, but I'm pretty sure that was that was the case. And you're right. Like when he's in Pittsburgh, um, when he's in Pittsburgh, right? Obviously, without last change, all you can do is try and shelter that third pair. Mm-hmm. And because um, because that third pair is um, sorry, because that third pair is you know because you don't have last change. Really, what it means is you're sort of down to putting them out on the fly when you're pretty comfortable that Sid or or, or Malkin's line isn't coming over the boards. Yeah. And you know, I do think once he got back to Nashville, he was able to get into a situation where he gets more of kind of a traditional matchup. And I, I like I, I wrote about this actually yesterday over at the Athletic, and you know one of the things I noticed was something like uh, two out of three shifts for um, for the third pair Irwin and, and uh, Weber in in Pittsburgh were on the fly shifts, and you know Yossi and Ellis were getting a pile of shifts that started with faceoffs, and I think that was just a, a function of him trying to shelter. Uh, you know, Irwin and and Weber and prevent Sullivan from getting a free shot at them by putting them out in the ice for a face-off. Yeah, well, I mean, I I thought Crosby was, you know, I I know he scored a couple points in in game one, but I thought he'd been held relatively in check. He obviously looked a lot better um, in game four. Uh, You know, he scored the breakaway goal. He had another breakaway that that Rene stopped, and I think that was an encouraging sign for the Penguins because if they're going to get over these depth issues and the blue line concerns and and everything that we've talked about so far that's plagued them in this series, I think they're going to just basically need like a Herculean effort from him and and Malkin to, to bridge the gap and make up for all those deficiencies yeah well um dom you know dom the guy with the unpronounceable last yeah dom l yes yeah dom l the legendary dom l he had a good story up today um talking about sort of how often do teams that get out shot like the penguins win the stanley cup Mm -hmm. and the answer is basically never uh but the interesting thing is right is that like pittsburgh is you know like they're a freak team um like they have with Kessel, Crosby, and Malkin, like they have three guys who can really put the puck in the net and they don't need that many chances. And so if there is one team that can do it, I do think it's Pittsburgh. Like, I don't think this is a, I don't think this is any sort of a sustainable model or a way you should do things. But I do think Pittsburgh has the high end guys that they, they can do it this way. And, you know, the odds are probably against them. But they're good enough that they can make it happen anyway. Yeah, I love that when when the team has some sort of success like this, and then all of a sudden people try to make these overarching conclusions and trying to you know carry it over to the rest of the league and be like, oh, well, is this a model that other teams should follow? It's like, yeah, well, if you get guys like Crosby and Walken, then I'm pretty sure you could play any which way and have at least like a heightened level of success compared to to other other teams with a different starting point. Sure. Well, it's, and it's something like if you talk to Rangers fans or Canadians fans, right, like they'll talk about it Um, and like having a really talented player, it's a blessing, but it can also be a curse because it can sort of blind you. You you think you're so close, Hmm. but it can blind you to failings within your team because that one player can, uh, can do so much for you. And it's funny, like back in the old days of when people were first getting into this stuff and kicking it around and keep in mind, a lot of this was done in Oilers blogs. Like there, there were people who were like, wow, this doesn't make any sense. You know, the 80s Oilers would get outshot and they'd win, you know, 8-5. And it's like, yeah, if you have Wayne Gretzky, Yari Curry, Paul Coffey, and Mark Messier, fill your boots. 
But, uh, you know, looking around most teams in the NHL, I'm not seeing a Wayne Gretzky. Yeah, no, it's true. It's, it's especially how, you know, having that one player can really blind you and, and, and make you think that you're closer than you are. That's especially the case with goalies. Like, I feel like the, uh, both the Montreal Canadiens and the New York Rangers have, have suffered from that in the past, however many years, where it's like guys like Price and Lundquist are just so good that they kind of trick you into believing that, that, that you actually have a much better team than you do. And then all of a sudden, if they stop saving like 93 plus percent shots or whatever they're facing, all of a sudden you, you don't have anything to fall back on. You get exposed a little bit. Yeah, I wonder with like a guy like with guys like Price and Lundqvist, if they'd be like almost better off just saying, you know what, I'm just going to sign one year contracts as a free agent and I'm just going to go to a team that's got, you know, great possession and, you know, basically a team that's already a great team, but that just needs a goalie. And um, and, you know, that way they can avoid having teams sort of think they they're better than they are because they're bailing them out so much. Yeah, I, th- I think that'd be a, a fascinating thing. I'm sure that uh, both their agents and the NHLPA might not necessarily love that that much, though. Yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, but hey, you got to serve yourself, right? Yes. Like, uh, they, don't, they don't work for the PA or work for their agents. They should uh, do it in their best interest. And, you know, goaltending is such a strange position, and that really does seem like a, uh, you know, a way to get around the fact that by their very presence, they they undermine in some ways the team's efforts because they they make them so much better. Yeah, um, do you want to talk a little bit about Roman Yossi? Because I feel like you've been uh, hammering this stuff pretty aggressively online, and I'm not sure if you wanted to get into a little discussion about it. Sure, no, I'm happy to talk about Roman Yossi. What's your what? Ask me about Roman Yossi. <laughs> well, how about I give you my opinion on Roman Yossi first? You cool with that? Okay. <laughs> uh, it's it, it's it's interesting because this stuff always happens on the internet, but it's like you can never have this, you know, realistic middle ground of of an opinion of a player. It's always like the most underrated guy or the most overrated guy, and the pendulum just swings so far back and forth depending on the day or the week. And I'm you know somewhere in in the middle of it like i think roman yossi's an excellent player who does a bunch of things really well i think that you know it's sometimes it's easy to overvalue a guy like him just if you're looking at purely at the point totals because uh the other stuff matters too so i think you need to keep that in mind uh, for contextual purposes but i also don't think he's necessarily like the you know the major liability that his biggest detractors also think he is like i thought i thought the way you described him as having a fourth forward on the ice was uh was pretty apt and also uh an interesting way to look at it well okay there's a few things here first of all um and see this always drives me nuts but it's like you know writing oh the, you know if you agree with the conventional wisdom hmm. writing i agree with the conventional wisdom is a waste of everybody's time yes like it's you know who, you know you know who, who you know who cares uh <laughs> You know, people think, say, like, you know, I don't know. Can you imagine reading anything less interesting than a, hey, Sick Crosby's great. Like, it's just, we all know he's great. You know, there's there's no argument that he's not great. Um, who wants to read that? So to start with, like, I think the interesting topics, at least for me from an analytics perspective, and even, you know, even generally, are cases where, you know, the whole world says the emperor's got a nice new suit. And, you know, when you look at the evidence, the, you know, the dummy's actually naked. So that's, that's my first point. And, you know, I, I think Yossi's a case where there's something to that. Now, here's where, you know, uh, I have a real issue with, you know, and it's funny, like, you know, you talk about Yossi as a fourth, as a fourth forward. I agree. He plays like a fourth forward. And I don't know if you saw those shot maps I put out of Yossi and Subban. 
but you can see kind of where they shoot the puck from in the offensive zone. And if you didn't know that they played the same position, you would you would think that uh, that Subban was uh, you know a defenseman and Yossi was something different. Hmm. So now where where I get you know where where I get you know sticky about these things is that to me it's 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 what you create minus what you give up, and then you get into an argument about well how do you measure what you create? <clears throat> and a lot of people think for defensemen, well you look at his points. I don't agree with that. And, you know, like every time Roman Yossi jumps off the blue line uh, to get into the offensive zone, somebody else has to cover for him. And so there's a forward dropping back. And you'll see cases of defensemen who get a lot of points, but the forwards get fewer points when they're on the ice. Mm -hmm. And I guarantee you, Yossi's one of those guys. If you look at how many goals the, the Predators score when he's on the ice, it's not really that impressive. Like he has an unbelievably impressive point total for defensemen. But they don't score a ton of, you know, they don't score, I think they're like an average, maybe slightly above average goal scoring team when he's on the ice. So, you know, the question is, what better measures his impact? Is it the points that he's getting or is it the, you know, the fact that uh, the Preds are a little bit above average as a goal scoring team when he's on the ice? I'm inclined to think it's the latter. And so what you're left with then is a player who, um, you know, gets an enormous amount of personal uh, personal credit for, for the points he puts up because, you know, in hockey, for whatever reason, we measure offense by this archaic system uh, of assigning credit for goals based on who last touched the puck, the last three guys to touch the puck that came up 80 years ago. Uh, you know, there's no, there's no theoretical basis for that, that way of doing it. And so, like, I think what you really see is you see Yossi make a lot of plays in the offensive zone that would have been made by, you know, a forward if Yossi wasn't jumping into the play. Um, so that's, you know, that's, that's the create side of the ledger for me. Then you get into the what do you give up. Well, to start with, if you're, a, if you're a defenseman consistently jumping off the blue line, there's a price that your team pays in terms of having a forward there if the puck goes back the other way. And I think you saw it last night um, on the second, the second Crosby breakaway. You have Yossi pinch up the boards. And this isn't a perfect example because I, I really believe in defensemen pinching up the boards. But you had Yarncroc on the, on, the, on the far side of the ice. And he didn't read that he needed to get out of there early enough, in my view. And what happened was, you know, you get the breakaway in part because Yarncroc doesn't back off and, and be, you know, be, through recognition of what's happening on the other side of the ice. That's just, that's just my, my opinion on it. I think a defenseman might have backed off earlier. Mm-hmm. So you've got players as a result, you know, defending positions that they, you know, aren't their natural position. And when you look at what the Predators give up when Yossi's on the ice, particularly, you know, compared to when Ekholm and Subban are on the ice, because that's the natural comparison, it's astronomical. They give up a lot more. And, you know, it's, if people want to say, oh, he's a, you know, he's a really good defenseman, he's a really good defenseman, well, how do you reconcile that with how much they give up? And, and that, to me, is the real issue. And I haven't heard a good argument or a good explanation for, you know, um, what they give up. And if you go back, and this is interesting, but like if you go back to last year or the year before, when Ekholm was with Ellis, Ellis had great defensive numbers. And this year, Ellis is a bit of a train wreck. And, you know, at some point you have to go, well, what's the common denominator here, right? And, and to me, it's, it's Yossi. So, so, you know, for, for, for me, looking at the evidence, I just don't see any evidence from a, from a data perspective. He's a, he's a great defenseman. And, you know, so that, that's kind of where I am with him. Well, I think, you know, from, from, for our purposes here, from a more sort of a practical perspective, the interesting question would be, uh, 
<laughs> like what what would happen if you just played an actual fourth forward like let's say a Craig Smith or you know so, uh, uh, um, and a sort of like an average like second third line guy there instead of Roman Yossi as the fourth guy on the ice like what would happen then because I know that Matt Kane uh wrote about this uh I think last week about whether teams should be playing four forwards when they're down late and trailing and I don't know it's an interesting discussion like we 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 talked so much about uh this idea of total hockey and whether we're eventually going to reach a time where you just have five versatile players on the ice they can all do a bunch of different stuff and whether positions are something that's going to stay around forever and I think that like that's a much more interesting discussion than debating you know whether Roman Yossi's the 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 10th best defenseman in the league or the 40th or whatever like I, I don't know what do you think about that or the 80th um I, I don't know. I I guess I think that's an interesting question. Um, I, I, I'm a little skeptical of the whole four forward idea. You know, at five on five, obviously love it on the power play. Like to me, a lot of these sort of quote unquote total football stuff that people talk about, like a big thing is having, you know, having your defenseman be willing to step up to keep pucks in the offensive zone. And you don't need to be a forward to do that. You just need to be willing to not just back off the blue line every single time. Um, you know, so I'm, you know, the, the issue that I really have with, uh, you know, sort of say going four forwards and whatnot is that, you know, you've got to defend too. And, you know, if you're a forward defending the rush, it's not what you usually do. You know, you're not, you haven't spent 20 years perfecting kind of your gap. Um, you know, it would be interesting if we had the player tracking data to see what happens on a rush when one of the two guys back is a forward versus one of the two guys back being a defenseman. But I bet you there's a big difference. Yeah, I mean, often you you, you do see that you know if a, if a forward gets it in transition and he notices that it is a, uh, an opposing forward that's defending him instead of a defenseman, he does typically tend to attack him more aggressively. But I, I like I'm, I'm I'm skeptical of the idea that uh, you know I think defending at the NHL level is very hard one on one. You 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 often see guys. Um, just like like if it's a prototypical defensive defenseman that's sort of known for just being positionally sound and blocking shots and doing stuff like that and doesn't really contribute anything else like i i don't i don't think there's that much value in those types of players and i'm always i always have my eyebrows raised when uh you know you hear how a guy like carl Alsner, for example is going to get five plus million dollars in free agency this summer and you're just like well, like like why what is what is he bringing to the table beyond uh all these sort of uh intangibles that he's been glorified for having but we actually haven't seen any real evidence of okay what's the difference between yossi and carl Alsner? um roman yossi has actual skills but do those skills result in uh do those skills result in uh you know positive a markedly larger positive impact on the hockey game well that's a uh, yeah that's that's a fair question i don't know do they I, I'm, I'm skeptical. I, I just, yeah, like that's, that's where you come, like, yeah, again, it's what you create, why hmm. minus you give up, all, you know, uh, Alsner doesn't create much. Um, but, but, uh, you know, I, I think that we think Yossi creates more than he does, or, or I think we think his marginal impact on what the team creates is bigger than it is because of the way in which we award points. And, and, and so, you know, like I, look, I agree with everything you've said about, you know, um, how do players impact the game? But, you know, I, I, I'm not sure what the case is that he has a massive impact on the game. Hmm. 
Yeah, I do wonder if it's just one of those things where when he does pull off something, it looks so good that it's very easy to sort of trick yourself into believing that it's better than it actually is. And you obviously latch on to uh, the successful plays and not, and you don't kind of dismiss the, the other stuff where he might be completely out of position or pinch and it leads to something coming the other way. It's not even that it's better than it actually is. It's that it's more, you know, you think it's more valuable than it mm, actually is, yeah. right? And like he, like, you know, like, he, you know, obviously like he does things and you go, holy cow, like it, it looks, you know, the eye is drawn to the man on the ice. Um, like he made a play last night where he like on the attack around the net, you know, creating opportunities. But, you know, the hard thing for, for people to do is to think, okay, well, if it was a defenseman who did that less aggressively, what would happen on, on the ice? And, and that's, it, it's a much harder question to answer. And all you can do is kind of really try to get at it indirectly through sort of looking at, you know, impact on goals, shots, etc. Right. But when you do that, the guy doesn't look nearly as impressive. Yeah, well, I think it's only fair. Um, you know, Nashville has a bunch of really good defensemen. I think they should, and Pittsburgh doesn't. I think that uh, Roman Yossi should just play for the Penguins for the rest of the series, and we'll see uh, how valuable he actually is. I'd love to see that. It's interesting, <laughs> like, looking at, the, um, looking at the expansion draft. Yeah. Uh, I really think that Nashville has to think long and hard about trading a defenseman. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, for me, when you look at how sterling his reputation is throughout the league, and I think, like, if people went and pulled a list of guys, like defensemen, who put up points but don't impact possession, they would be surprised at, you know, the general reputations of, of those defensemen. Like, generally speaking, after a few years, people kind of figure them out. And, uh, like, Ollie Matta is one of those guys. Right. Uh, and, you know, two years ago, what were people saying about Ollie Matta? And, you know, so it's, to me, it's a very interesting discussion. Um, it's a very interesting thing, basically, because it gets to the heart of, like, how the game works and how the ways that people have come up with to describe what happens on the ice kind of lies to them or, or misleads them. And, you know, I, I'd be fascinated if they, if they traded him because I'd have to think with the you know, with the way people talk about them. And, you know, a lot of these media guys are just kind of conduits for opinions that they hear from, uh, from scouts and whatnot. So obviously there's a lot of people who think really highly of Yossi. Um, I'd be very interested what happened if Nashville turned him into a high-end forward, protected the forward, and then went and found a fourth defenseman after, uh, after free agency or after, after the expansion draft. And that would also let them get into running, you know, two, four forward, one defense units next year which I think would, would serve them well because their power play is a bit of a, uh, it's a bit of a sore point. Yeah. What do you, what do you, uh, I've had some discussions on the podcast uh, over the past couple of weeks about uh, Nashville's power play. I know that you've been looking at this quite, quite closely. Like, do you think it's just a matter of uh, they're just kind of trying to set up the wrong stuff and taking shots from the, from the wrong places or, or do you think there's something more to it? No, that's basically it, right? Like it's, and, you know, it, it again, Dimitri, it goes back to what we talked about with price, right? Like great players, you know, can kind of fool you into doing something that isn't necessarily good or, or, or thinking you're better than you are, thinking that parts of your team are better than you are. And like Nashville does have three guys. And like, I, you know, I got I have no problems with Yossi on the power play. Like, like the argument for me with him is a five on five thing. Hmm. Um, and, and the same, you know, obviously I, I really like PK and, uh, you know, I think Ellis is a real good player too. So, you know, but, but, but what I think, you know, you almost wonder what happens there is whether or not, you know, you've got this guy who's got a really good skill, but it's not great at kind of driving goal difference. And, you know, like it's like Ellis can hammer the puck, 
the problem is it, it, it's hard to score from, you know, five feet to the, to the left of the dot um, on the power play when you're out near the blue line. And he's shooting a lot from out there. And it's, if you look at a map, it's funny. Like, I actually think Nashville's power play has been lucky in the playoffs. If you look at a shot map, um, like, they shoot a ton from the outside. And, and they aren't really scoring from out there. I think they've got maybe two or three goals from out there. Um, and then they've got a bunch of goals that have kind of hit people in front of the net. So, and if you look at them the regular season, their power play stunk. And, and to me, you know, what's going on there is that Nashville is just generating way too many shots that, that aren't, you know, highly efficient shots. And, you know, I think, like I said, I think they've been a bit fortunate in the playoffs, but I, I don't think it's a very efficient way of doing the power play. But I think it's partly driven by the fact that they've got these guys who, you know, as far as shooting from the outside goes, are pretty good. Um, but it doesn't necessarily make it a smart thing to do. Yeah, it's, it's an opportunity cost thing. It's funny how uh, I, I, I'm a big believer that, you know, five on five, people put way too much stock and emphasis on, on shot quality. But it, on the power play, for whatever reason, I feel like it, it goes completely the other way where they're not really paying enough attention to it. So it's fascinating, uh, that, that dynamic between how those two different phases of the game work. Yeah, it's, you know, yeah, like in the long run, you have to have shot volume. Mm. And there are no long-term good power plays that don't have shot volume. And it's funny, like every year, people, oh, maybe this is the one, maybe this is the one. And then, you know, it kind of, it kind of blows up. And it was, we saw it this year with Montreal, right? Like uh, Eric Engels had a piece on Sportsnet. And it kind of was hinting that maybe the Canadians had solved shot quality. Right. And they had a bunch of quotes from people there. Oh, you know, we, we want to set up the good shot. Blah. I, and then, like, Montreal's power play, like, stopped working once they won. Once they, uh, like, literally, as soon as the article went up, the power play stopped working. And, 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 and it, it's, it's it, you know, like, it's, like I say, you know, to me, you want to make your bets based on things that have been historically good in the long run. And these low shot volume power plays or power plays that shoot from the outside, uh, it's it's a hard way to make a living. Yeah. Um, okay. Before we get out of here, I do want to quickly talk about this uh, Colton Pareko article you wrote about recently because it seems to have generated some interesting discussion online. Um, I'll give you a chance here to just kind of sum up, give give people the too long didn't read version of uh, of your the argument you were making in it. Sure, this is, I guess, for the people who are trashing it on TSN radio without reading it? Yes, exactly, yes. I was, gonna, gonna I, I, I was, I was trying to kind of uh, hint at that without actually uh, dragging people on here because I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be a bit nicer these days, Tyler. Oh, man, I miss the old, the old kitty. <laughs> you got soft and eat me. Um, yeah, okay, so basically the, uh, the premise of the article is this. The Leafs are in a, uh, a pretty unique position uh, with respect to both the salary cap and talent because they've got a pile of salary cap room this year, and they're a very good team. Like, I think they're a better team than their spot in the standings would suggest. So, you know, the challenge for the Leafs becomes then, how do you get more high-end talent um, when you're going to be drafting in the 20s, you know, likely for the foreseeable future? And historically, offer sheets are a bad idea for a number of reasons. First, you know, you have to be a really good team for an offer sheet, like to make adding that one player um, be worth it. And, you know, like, you know, like I say, like there was a TSN segment critiquing this and they're talking about the Leafs being in year two of a rebuild. If you think the Leafs are in year two of a rebuild, I'm sorry, but like, like the, you know, the rebuild is over. It, it, it's win time. Yes, we're here. Yeah. Yeah. And, and. You know, like, so like the Leafs are in, 
they're good enough that adding one high-end player could make a real difference for them. So that's kind of the first point. Um, and like historically, like you know, the classic offer sheet that succeeded was the Oilers' offer sheet with Dustin Penner. And you know, like the issue with that was that the Oilers weren't one good player away in 2008 and or 2007, I guess it was. And and, and the the Leafs, I think they're one really good player away from being a very tough out in the playoffs. So that's a little bit different. Second, you know, there's no point making an offer sheet if it's to a team that has a pile of salary cap room because they can match it. Um, so all you're doing is, you know, then is you're just wasting everybody's time and making enemies with no reasonable hope of uh, success. So that's 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 the second point. The third point is people overvalue draft picks. Yeah. And, you know, like once you get out of the real top of the draft, your odds of finding, uh, you know, a high end player fall dramatically. And, and I put less weight on, you know, oh, we're going to draft some fourth liners and we want our fourth line being homegrown. Uh, I, I just don't think that that's that important. And personally, like, like for me, the draft is about finding things that you can't find elsewhere. And so the draft really then is about um, how do we get high-end players. And if you think you're going to be picking in the 20s or, you know, if, if all reasonable expectations are that you're going to be picking in the 20s, your chances of finding a star, even with four draft picks in the twenties, aren't very good. Like you might, I, I think, I think you have like a thirty percent chance with four first round picks in the twenties, uh, or four first round picks, not just in the twenties, but as a playoff team. So that's uh, what is that now? Seventeen to thirty-one these days, or sixteen to thirty-one? Yeah, sixteen yeah. to thirty-one. So you've got yeah, thirty percent chance, say, of getting a star with four of those picks. So. You know, if you can trade for those picks for a hundred percent chance of getting a star, right. or, or, or that seems like good business to me. And the thing is, like for most teams, like again, you go back to that Oilers signing a Penner, right? The Oilers weren't in a position where if they got one star, it'd make a huge difference. They needed to go into the lottery or go into the draft and beat the odds a few times in order to set themselves up for real success. And the Leafs aren't in that position anymore. Like what the Leafs need is sort of certainty of, of high-end players. And so, you know, uh, St. Louis this year is in a really just awkward position because I think they've got about four, four and a half million dollars worth of cap space. It sounds like there's a pretty good chance the cap's going to be flat next year. Um, and, and if they had to clear out space for Pareko by moving people, and this is, keep in mind, we're before the expansion draft, but... If they had to clear out space for Pareko by moving people, it would get very difficult for them because they're really looking at, you know, assuming Petrangelo and uh, Tarasenko are untouchable, they're having to move two or three people, and they'd have to do that in the space of a week to, to match a, a big dollar deal. So, you know, for me, what it breaks down to is how do you get a high-end player? Uh, the draft is one way of doing it, but if you, if you, if you can get a, you know, a high-end player for say four first round draft picks and 12 million bucks. I think that's a good piece of business. Yeah. Well, I mean, especially for, uh, <laughs> for a player like Pareko, like I, I'm, I'm one of his biggest believers and have been for a while now. So I think that the net gain for the Leafs, are just inserting him into the lineup next season would all of a sudden make them a pretty interesting team. And especially in that Atlantic division, which I feel like is, is pretty ripe for the taking. Yeah. Well, and, and like Pareko's played better competition than people realize. Yep. And, um, you know, and, and I'm not really sold on the partners he's had. Like, St. Louis is a strange team where I really like the right side of their defense, but the left side's a little bit shaky. Yeah. And that's, 
that's not usually the case. Like, you know, left, left, left side defensemen are, are easier to find as a rule. But St. Louis is, for whatever reason, really strong on the right side. And if you look at the Leafs, right, like, like I like the left side of Leafs defense. I'm not sold on the right side. So there seems to me to be a bit of synergy there as far as him fitting exactly what they need. And then you look at the, the right-handed defenseman free agent market this year. Everyone thinks Shattenkirk's going somewhere in, uh, on the eastern seaboard in the U.S. So that doesn't really leave much. And, you know, like, and it's like one of the arguments was, well, you know, all the other players are going to be pissed off if you pay a guy big money for a year. Um, and I don't know, maybe they will be, but, you know, do you want to win? And if you want to win, and this is a way to get talent without giving up anyone off the roster, um, you know, like it's, it's kind of a, a function of a planned economy as you get some weird things, right? And the NHL is a, is, a, is a planned economy, so sometimes the incentives get a little bit screwy. Yeah, I think once they're uh, one of the best teams they use here in conference, I, I feel like that'll be a, an easier pill to swallow for the other players already in the locker room. Yeah, yeah. So, and I, I don't know, like I, like I don't, I don't think players are stupid. Like you know, like the guys on the Leafs who are who are going to get paid at some point. You know, like I don't know. You try and put yourself in that position, and if you understood that, you know, like think of it as if we're paying Pareko five million dollars and paying seven million dollars to St. Louis for him. Um, you know, like, 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 like where the money goes shouldn't be an issue. Like, like, I can't understand why you would be okay if the Leafs could trade seven, you know, four, four first round draft picks and $7 million to St. Louis, uh, and then pay Pareko five. Right. But if you, if it's four first round draft picks and 12 for Pareko, all of a sudden this causes massive dressing room turmoil. It, it doesn't make, I don't know, to me, I say, what's the difference? Yeah. Um, you know, either way, it would be your team going out and plugging a hole without moving any of the guys who the Leafs have already developed internally. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. Uh, all right, Tyler, plug some, uh, plug some stuff. Where can people follow you, and, and what are you working on these days? Uh, Twitter, at Delo Hockey, and then there's always stuff at The Athletic, which everyone should subscribe to. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not just Leafs. Um, Myrtle gives me pretty free reign to write about whatever catches my uh, eye. Nice. Well, Jimmy James Myrtle. Um, <laughs> all right man thank, thanks for taking the time and we'll get you back on sometime down the road sounds good thanks bud cheers the hockey pdo cast with dimitri filipovich follow on twitter at dim filipovich and on soundcloud at soundcloud.com slash hockey pdo cast mm-hmm.